Well, if you have your Bibles today, uh, turn to the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, you should be very well aware now that uh, where we're at and what we're trying to accomplish with the book of 2 Corinthians. And uh, you've heard me say it by this time many, many times, how that the book of 2 Corinthians is really the handbook of ministry for you and for me. Most of the Bible, whether you know it or not, is built that way, that it's designed around uh, the books itself and how they teach certain patterns of, of ministry. And we saw how that the book of Romans, when we went through that, really taught us about the uh, doctrine that the church is to believe. First uh, Corinthians, that book showed us how, what a church is not supposed to do and got into all the areas that they were messed up in. And then someplace in the process of Paul dealing with them, they decided that they're going to do what's right and they're going to try to get on board for ministry. And then this is when Paul wrote the book of Second Corinthians. If you don't have that little note in your Bible uh, designating those two books, you probably ought to do that. It'll just help you kind of put it into a context. But, you know, for you and for me, I learned many years ago, and I, I tell you this today, if you want to learn the lost art of ministry, and truly, true biblical ministry is a lost art today. It's like sword making, you know, it's like many of the antiques, and you look at some of the woodworking that the people did back in the 17th and 1800s, and they had no modern tools like we have today, yet their craftsmanship and, and their workmanship and the way they found to do things with what the materials that they had. It's an lost art. And certainly today in, in the ministry, uh, dealing with people in the Bible and dealing it with the, the right way is, is a lost art too. But for those of you who want to, uh, you know, learn to deal with people in circumstances, uh, the real key simply is, is to learn this book. Learn every aspect. Everything I'm giving you is what I've had to learn myself and some of the many experiences of 40-plus years in the ministry. A lot of them good, some of them bad, but, uh, but nevertheless, we learn through them. And so far, we've found that the key element of ministry, and this is defined for us in Chapter 1, and, uh, and the key element is the ministry being defined as is suffering. We go through the things in life many times because of our own stupidity, but we learn the lessons of those things. Or many times you're doing what's right and you go through problems just because you are trying to do what's right. And things happen in life. Uh, bad circumstances don't just happen to uh, bad people. Uh, they happen to God's people. And uh, God has a design by them, and we learn to grow through them. And as I've told you weeks gone by, that through you know, uh, our weakness, God's strength is perfected and God does things. And whether we like it or not or whether we really know it or not, probably some of the greatest times when God uses us is really when we as individuals are at our weakest point in life. And uh, that's totally contrary today uh, of what you see and what you get in most Christians. And, uh, you know, when we go through and we learn those things that God gives us and we see how God consoles us, how God takes the principles to help us, then we uh, also uh, can help others. I've had people come into our church all the time over the years, you know, it's been in my ministry forever, and I just kind of smile and nod my head and roll my eyes, you know, when I can't say it, but they tell me how valuable they're going to be because of the experiences they've been through in life. You know, I've been through this, I've done this, I've worked with this, I've worked with that. And like, because you went through an experience, that's going to make you valuable. And of course, everybody goes through bad experiences in life. That's not what makes anybody valuable. But what makes a person valuable, have you learned the lessons that you went through? Do you know now the biblical principles that when you deal with other people or you're a leader or you're doing something else or the, if somebody comes up with the same problem that you had, do you give them uh, what you did or do you give them what the Bible did? You see, that's the key. 
The key is not the bad things or what you went through in life. Uh, everybody goes through that. The key is, did you learn from them, and do you have the biblical principles now that you can <laughs> lay out? And, uh, and, of course, that's the key. That's really the whole aspect of it. Last week, we, we talked about a great concept, and that's the concept of the testimony of our conscience. And boy, I, I don't know of a greater thing that you need to grasp and latch on to if you're really going to seriously pursue ministry uh, in this church or wherever is that great concept. And the example was Paul in, in the church at Corinth. He'd, he'd, uh, he'd written some pretty hard things to them, and many times when you deal with God's people, you have to you know, really deal with the issue as it is, and you have to you know, get hard lines sometimes in some things. And, and he did with his church. Not everybody liked it, but the bottom line was, and I, I gave you this last week, we learned a great truth that even though not everybody was happy with Paul, and he makes reference to that. He says, some of you accepted us in part, yet he didn't let that get him off track. You know, nobody is going to, whatever you do in life, nobody is going to like what you do. There's going to be people who do like it and people that don't like it. Uh, the best job you guys do in preaching, and you may just cross all your T's and dot all your I's and just been a, an, an exceptional sermon, and there'll be people that come up and say, boy, I really learned a lot from that, and people will come up. I guarantee you in every crowd there'll be somebody who says, well, I didn't get anything out of that. And that's just the way that it is. And uh, you, never, you never let those things affect you in ministry one way or the other because of the great lesson that you learned as, if, as long as whatever, you know, Whatever circumstance you get yourself into, whatever decisions that you make as a Christian, the real key is not you standing up and justifying yourself. And a lot of God's people like to do that. Uh, they get into the bad situation. It is just completely outside the guidelines of the Scriptures because they're prideful or, or whatever. They always want to justify themselves in every way, shape, or form. And really, you know, the really the only thing you've got to be able to do in your life, in any given situation you find yourself in, is to be look back in your life and whatever given situation is and just ask yourself one question. Does it line up with what the Bible says I'm to do? Quit justifying yourself. Quit blaming everybody else for your issues. When you look back in your life, open the Scriptures and just ask yourself, does it line up with what the Bible says? When it does, it doesn't matter then. Because you have what Paul talked about, a good conscience uh, toward God, a good testimony uh, toward God in your own personal life. Simply means you look back in your life and whatever you have to deal with, whether everybody likes it or not, many times people don't like the outcome. Do you have that testimony of a good conscience toward God that you did what the Bible says? And when you're called on the carpet, can you go to the Scriptures and say, this is what I did based on what the Bible says? You can't beat that. There's no greater feeling or reward or confirmation that you're doing what God wants you to do um, than you can look back and see a trail, a trail, a trail of biblical principles. And that's why we put such an emphasis on biblical principles here. They always keep us between the white lines. And at the same time, they always ferret out the phonies just like that. You can say whatever you want to say and justify what you want to justify, but at the end of the day, when we open up the book, it pretty much, and that's why the judgment seat of Christ is going to be such a great deal. That's why the great white throne judgment is going to be such a great deal. You know, the great white throne judgment is going to be a lot like the judgment seat of Christ in one aspect, that people are going to try to justify what they do. You notice that God never argues with them in anything you find in the Bible. God never argues with an unsaved person at the great white throne judgment. 
That person's going to justify himself. Well, I did this and you did that and I did all these things. And he never argues with them. The only thing he says about the great white throne judgment is simply this. And the books were opened. He's just going to take it right back to what the Bible said and see if you line up with what you did. I mean, it's so simple. Maybe it's too simple. Maybe we're simple. I don't know. Now, as we enter into this last lesson in the opening chapter here, and this has been a great chapter, a great defining chapter, uh, all through our study, what we want to start with, and I'm going to keep this before you every week throughout the, you're going to get sick of hearing it, but the price of learning is repetition. And I want you to focus on the four little concepts that I gave you about yourself and what you ought to be doing every day of your life. The first one we've talked about is examining yourself. Not everybody else. Examine yourself. Know yourself. Be honest with who you are. Take heed to yourself. Correct those things in your life that are wrong. Most people don't want to correct what's right and wrong in their life. They just always want to focus on what's good in their life. And you know what? I'll be honest with you. You can have 90% good in your life and have 10% not good, and that 10% will cancel out the 90% as far as God's concerned. People don't get that. And then the last thing is prove yourself. And like I said, I'm going to keep those before you throughout our study. And the reason is if you don't learn to be honest with yourself, and this is why it's so important when we get into the book of 2 Corinthians, and so many of you now are right at that edge of getting into ministry and, and already in, of course, but you're in the edge of really understanding it and letting it, well, you'll see as we, when I'm done today, it's going to be a lot clearer to you. But uh, the truth of the matter is, if these four things don't become in your life as automatic and, and work them every day, uh, you may be the greatest person in the world, but you'll be of no value in ministry simply because these are the backbones of, of, of building yourself the way God wants you to be built. And the whole concept has to be on honesty between you and God. Now, they're not only important to us, these things, but I use them as a gauge in, in, in watching people grow. I see them negative or positive in, in, in people's lives that, that I work with and watch them grow. I, and this is why I drill them into you over and over again, and especially now in the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, but it's a great tool in watching a young Christian grow and mature. And I basically look for these things in people's lives. Because I know what it takes to build yourself for the Lord based on the biblical principles. And, um, you know, it's, these are the things that are, have to be there or if they're not there. And it's a simple formula. I mean, you know, the mark of immaturity, uh, and there's many characteristics of maturity, but the mark of, of immaturity will always be the inability to take responsibility for your actions and be accountable for them. Now, you know that's right with your children, well, it's also true of God's children. And one of the main marks of immaturity that I look for in a person will always be their inability or their ability to take responsibility for their actions and be accountable for them. By the same standard, the mark of maturity is somebody who takes responsibility for their actions and is accountable to them. You see, my goal in all of this, and I told you this last week, my goal, I know everybody comes in and you got issues. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, I'm not looking for people to come in that don't have problems. I'd be out of a job. I, that's my job is solving problems. But my job is to get you to the point where you get these things in your life, that you get out of your own life the way you think it runs and get back to the Bible. Because my goal is not forever to minister to you. I said it last week. My goal in time is to, though in a sense I'll never stop ministering to you, 
but my real goal is to have you minister with me, that together we get something done for the Lord. That's the only reason God ever, ever, ever had a church, and that's the way we've got to work. A couple of weeks ago on a Thursday night, and like I said earlier, boy, the Thursday night questions have been really great. Somebody asked a great question in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16, where it talked about the cloak of maliciousness. And that verse in particular talks about using your liberty in Christ to do what you want to do instead of, and hide behind it and instead of doing what God wants you to do. And then through the cloak and the, uh, we talked about take off that mask last week, one of old Mel's old sermons, that uh, you hide behind that fake spirituality. And that is a basic problem, whether you know it or not, that everybody deals with uh, either when they first get saved or, uh, you know, shortly thereafter. And this is part of the process. And I've watched so many of you come to the point where you have, you've had to learn how to grow through that basic stage of immaturity. And uh, it's a lot like little kids, you know. And uh, little kids always want to blame their problems or what happens. Something gets broken in a room and there's three kids in there, you know, they'll all point to the smallest guy, you know, whether he did it or not. And little children, brothers and sisters, are always blaming the problem on, on the other one. That's just the way that it is. That's why it's so important, and you've got to stay focused on that great concept where the Bible says examine yourself, you know yourself, you take heed to yourself, and you prove yourself. You know, I was watching a thing the other day uh, on police investigations. I always like the, the techniques that they use because they're faced with a, many of the problems that you're faced with in ministry. And uh, I don't know if you've ever really thought about it or not, but, uh, you know, uh, they're always faced with trying to figure out if somebody's telling the truth or not. I mean, if one of our police officers is running his patrol down at, you know, 30-second intrust at about uh, 4 o'clock in the morning and you see some guy driving around the block time after time and he pulls him over and he walks up and asks him, he wasn't speeding or anything, but he just, you know, 4 o'clock, and the guy says, what are you doing? He says, well, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for some bagels. Well, you probably know that that's not exactly getting all the truth. <laughs> And every time, uh, you know, when people do crimes, you know, the police have to get to the bottom of it. And, you know, I, I, I've told people all the time, I used to teach young pastors, and I used to tell them that, that uh, you know, when you're in a ministry, it's a lot like being a police officer because, you know, at 4 o'clock in the morning when a police officer pulls over a car and it's dark and you're all by yourself and you're walking up to that car that may have three or four guys in it and it's all dark in there, you know, you're not, you know, you, you, you can't, you can't just shoot holes in the car to give them a warning, you see. In other words, you've got to play one thing right up to the point where you see it's everything's going south and then be fast enough and quick enough to react to it without getting yourself killed. And that's a lot like the ministry. But anyway, I, you know, for years, police used lie detector tests. And lie detector tests are based on, on your blood pressure and all that, you know, that your anxiety level and all that stuff. And, and they've never been admissible in the court. But the police always use that. You know, we remember, remember the, this ongoing case with little baby Lisa that disappeared here in Kansas City a couple, six, seven months ago or something like that. And, you know, that's a classic example. And I'm not putting guilt on anybody because I know nothing about it. I just know I didn't do anything to kids. But anyway, <laughs> bottom line is, you know, the parent starts saying one thing and police immediately are a little suspect to it. It just doesn't all line up. Much like in the ministry. People will tell you things and immediately... You get a little suspect about it. And the cops call it their gut feeling, you know, because they've been on the street. They, they put it in the ministry. You, you get the same kind of concept. 
you've seen so many patterns of people and the patterns never change that when you hear that old familiar sound, well, I was just looking for bagels, officer, at 4 o'clock in the morning. You know that that's not what you're getting here. And so they asked them to take a polygraph test, and of course they did, and, and police said the mother miserably failed the polygraph test. And immediately, you know, we know now that there's whatever we've got, we didn't have all of the truth. I'm not saying they had anything to do with it at all. I'm just saying the truth was not there. The police officer's job, investigators, interrogators, is to get the truth. Well, modern science and police technology are always on the move, you know. And there's a thing now where, and I'm not sure what they call it, but it deals with the, uh, the pattern of the brain and your eyes, and I was reading an article the other day that, the, you know, the, the, the body, our body uh, works off electrological impulses from the brain. And our brain is quadrant up in different, uh, in different uh, sections. Uh, if you want a greater study on that, Bob Gregg has a pastor friend who actually taught on the left side and the right side of the brain. Is that all right, Bob? Yeah. He may want to give that tape out afterwards. <coughs> the good friend of yours that uh, talked about that men think with the left side, women think with the, with the right side. <coughs> And that was the most ridiculous sermon I've ever heard. Anybody knows that a woman doesn't think with either side. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <clears throat> now, see. <clears throat> see. In public speaking, this is called masking because I had to blow my nose. I didn't want to be polite, so I said something that made you laugh. And while you were all sidetracked with that hilarious thing I just saw, I blew my nose and nobody even saw it. You see, I'll put it together. Anyway. But the way it works is it's your brain is divided up into quadrants. And, and I don't understand it all. I'd love to know more about it because there's a real tie into the Bible here. But what they say is that Part of your brain that runs your part of your facial or your eyes uh, is connected to part of that brain. And it says, and I don't have this exactly right, but when you ask the person a question, if that person lies to you, they instinctively, that part of the brain sends the impulse that their eyes look up, up to the left or right. I'm not sure which it is. But you can watch the eyes and you can see which way it goes. Now, I think that's incredible. Now, I, like I said, I'd love to know more about that, but I know this. <clears throat> I, know in, I know this for a fact that Men, real men, like myself, real men, you know, you always want to talk to a guy. You want to look him in, look him in the eye. When you, how many times you dealt with your children and you, you ask your kids a question and they're looking all around, yeah, and you say, look me in the eye and tell me that's what you did or you didn't do, see? There's something about the eyes. Now, I, I'll take it one step further and I, I'll tell you this. I think two of the greatest studies in the Bible that need to be developed, and I've never developed them, but uh, uh, to a certain degree I have, but I think two of the greatest studies in the Bible are the study of blood and the study of eyes. Because the Bible says in Leviticus, the life of the flesh is in the blood. That's why when you go to a doctor and they don't know what's wrong with you, first thing they do is draw blood. Blood tells them everything. And so one of the greatest studies in the Bible will... Well, uh, we'll be about blood. And man, you can take that thing and, 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 and boy, there's no end to that. But on the other hand, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22, the Bible says the light of the body is in the eye. And that's why when they want to find out if you're really dead, they look at your eyes. So there's something to that. And I don't understand it all, but I, I, I said all that to say this. The Bible follows a similar pattern. It, it really does. 
And when the police officers and investigators, interrogators, they follow basically patterns of human nature that they have developed through their scientific techniques. But really, frankly, most of them are based on the Bible, you know. I mean, uh, they, that's what they do. And, but the Bible follows similar patterns. And when you're dealing with people in ministry, which many of you are starting to do now and some of you are well on your way, and uh, when you get to that point, you're going to find that in time, you're going to find that it's simply nothing complicated. It's simply learning and watching the patterns of human nature. Human nature leaves its own trail. Just like you can go to a crime scene and find a fingerprint, or you can find a blood, or you can find a piece of hair, and you can go and get DNA or whatever you need or the fingerprints and run it down, that person leaves a trail behind them. If you're paying attention, you'll find that when you start to deal with people, and I don't expect you to understand all this today, but I'm giving you 40 years plus of experience in dealing with people and problems. They always leave a pattern. The funniest thing, my wife, I shouldn't even say these things to you because we talk about it. She brings it up to me all the time. That about the fact that I know when most of you are lying to me, I'll ask you questions. Not never from this point, no one's going to ever talk to me again. I can see this where this is going right now. But not in all cases, but if I think there's something suspect, my job is to investigate. That's what a pastor does. He looks well to his herd and I unto his flocks. Book of Proverbs. And so I'll ask some simple questions. And I know by the answers that just like the police officer says, um, did you have anything to do with so-and-so's death? No. <clears throat> <laughs> By the, the answer falls into the patterns. And I, I'm just telling you. I, I'm just telling you. They, there are patterns connected with human nature, and they're built around or out of this, these, this four-pound outline I gave you. And you know it's true in everything in life. We, uh, is, is Norbert still here? He was here a minute ago. Is, is Norbert here? Sarah, Sandy? Okay. Norbert is, Norbert is one of the classic deer hunters, fishermen, and turkey hunters that we have in our church. Steve Brackeen's another one. I mean, there's a lot of them. And you guys, you might make a science of it. But you know, you don't get a, you don't get a prize buck. Joe Christensen's another one. John Christensen's another one. I mean, we got a bunch of them. But these guys all know what I'm saying is true. You don't go out and get a prize buck just because you decide to go, you decide to go hunting, go down and get your hunting license and go to, you know, to the gun store and buy a rifle and a scope and then head out to the woods. If you do get a prize buck, it's because if you did an autopsy on it, it, had, it was brain dead. And it just walked out, you know, said it was target. Here, shoot me. I'm miserable in life, you know. <laughs> Better check because he's probably a Christian deer. But anyway, that's beside the point. <laughs> but, but you know you got to go through the patterns. The guy who get the big deer goes out long before deer season starts. He looks the trees to see if they're rubbing on the trees. I'm not sure why they rub on the trees, but they're they rubbing on the trees. They do all, I don't care if you know, it's fine. You don't know. What are you talking about? You know, you, closest you ever got to deer hunting is eating one of Steve's deer steaks if he had invited you over for dinner. <clears throat> anyway, so they go out long time before. 
They don't go out and say, oh, this is a tree I think I'll build my tree stand in. They look for all of the patterns where the deer run. In other words, if you want to get a deer, you've got to get where the deer are. You don't just go out there, dum 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 Oh, there's a big one. You've got to learn the patterns of where they go. When do they eat? What time of day? Are they they're better in the morning and the evening? You don't see a lot of deer hunters out during the day. Well, I would think that'd be the best. It's warmer then. <clears throat> you can see better. But the problem is the deer don't go out. You've got to learn a pattern. Turkey hunting's the same way. <clears throat> turkey hunting is one of the hardest things you're ever going to do. The smartest, I don't know why they call them turkeys, but, and we always use that word like, you're a turkey. Turkey, that's a compliment. Turkey is one of the smartest animals you'll ever find. He'll see you. Hey, I've been sitting 400 yards up on a ridge watching a turkey 400 yards away walk along a bank and just stand up to get a better look, and he saw me and went up in that woods. Incredible eyesight. But they do the same thing. You don't bag a big turkey because you just go out and look like one, <coughs> buy your turkey suit and walk around, you know. You, you got you to learn their patterns. You'll go in the woods long before, and you'll look for what they call scratchings. Scratching just because they're looking for acorns or whatever they eat, so they scratch out a little circular pattern. So you walk through the woods looking for, for scratching. You see about 40 or 50 scratchings, you got something. But then you have another problem. Squirrels do the same thing. So now you've got to be smart enough to determine between a turkey scratching and a, and a, and a squirrel scratching. There's a, it's a pattern to it. I'm, tr- I'm trying to make a point here, you know. <laughs> and, 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 and you want to, you, and most of the times you want to hunt a gobbler. So you've got to know where its gobblers are hanging out and where there's hens hanging out. The way you do that, and I don't mean to be crude, is by turkey droppings. Am I not saying the truth, guys? Sure I am. Help me out here. Is that not true? Amen. That's right. You get down there and you're looking at it and you find turkey droppings. And now how do you tell turkey droppings between the male and the female? Well, simple. You taste it. <laughs> <laughs> Yep, that's a male. <laughs> no. Okay, put this in your Bible. A male turkey dropping is, J, is shaped like a J. And a woman, a female's turkey dropping is shaped straight. I mean, that's what I don't know what to tell you. But these are the patterns. You can laugh all you want. It's obviously you're not turkey hunters. Why am I even wasting my time with you before? You're not real men. <clears throat> I'm just telling you. You see, you got to learn to pattern it. And it's the same way with fishing. Fish, I've never been a good fisherman. I don't have the patience. If I fish, give me a hand grenade. That's how I want to fish. <laughs> Let's get them now. Boy, there's a lot of them there. How was the fishing today? Oh, it was wonderful. <clears throat> I got 48 fish and killed two fishermen that got too close to the blast. But all right. But anyway, certain fish are at certain levels at certain times of day. My point in all of this, patterns. There's patterns to everything in life. And if you're going to be a good fisherman, then you've got to learn the patterns. If you're going to be a good turkey hunter, then you've got to learn the patterns. If you've got to be a, you're going to be a deer hunter, you've got to learn the patterns. And by the same token, if you're going to be a good minister and learn how to minister the Word of God and deal with people, you've got to learn the patterns. I mean, it's just that simple. Patterns of human nature. I mean, it's just that simple. You know, you deal with somebody on a particular issue, you know, and immediately. It happens all the time. Immediately. 
they will say back to me, well, you know, so-and-so, and there's lots of people that are like that, you know, and so-and-so, I dealt with a lady one time on her kids, and the first thing out of her, my kids were some problems. And the first thing she said, well, you know, so-and-so kids are, are, and there's a lot of kids in, our, in this church that aren't very good, and a lot of people like that. The first time somebody starts saying that to you, that's a pattern trait. Mark it down. The verdict is guilty. Guilty. That's what guilty people do. People will always try to shift because they don't want to examine themselves, because they don't want to do what they need to do, because they don't want to take responsibility and accountability, mark it down. The first thing they will do when you confront them is bring up everybody else on the planet. And they'll have a list 20 pages long. And what that does, it's supposed to make them okay because nobody else is okay in their own book. And the process is, we're not talking, I told this lady, we're not talking about those kids. I got appointments with their parents the rest of the month, which I didn't, but she didn't know that. I'm talking about your kids. Accountability and responsibility is the key to examining yourself and then getting to the place where you prove yourself. And I'm telling you, when you start dealing with people, you're going to find people, the moment you try to deal with them on an issue, they're going to tell you, give you a laundry list of everybody else out there to try to get it off of them because they do not want to be accountable, responsible for their problem. You see it in your kids if you're paying attention. You see it in your kids. If you're parents and you're good parents, you see it in your kids. Now, I know that when my parents grew up, you know, uh, and I grew up with my parents, it was a different world today. I grew up in an era where the movies was Father Knows Best. You grew up in a world where Father Knows Nothing today, pretty much. And, and that's the part of the problem. And, but, but you see it in your kids. And you see the moment. Uh, I, I, I've seen, I saw it in my own kids growing up. <clears throat> they do something wrong, and they know they're going to be in trouble for it. And so what they do is they, they suddenly hurt their leg <laughs> or they get sick. And, and, and what they do, and it's a great trick unless you've got smart parents because your smart parents will see you walking around the house <clears throat> and then when they're out of sight, it's, <clears throat> see? Now, the reason for that is is because you want to shift what you did wrong so they're more concerned because you have loving parents and you have caring parents. They're going to say, oh, 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 they did something wrong, but they're sick. How do I whip them when they're sick? It's easy. The same way when they're well. <laughs> but it seems so terrible to whip a sick kid, doesn't it? Yeah, and your kid knows that too. That's why they're limping. I told my kids one time, you know, when I, my kids were growing up, there was an article, it happens all the time, where parents will, will, uh, will, I guess they call it corporal punishment, where you whip your children. I'm a farm believer that, uh, you know, that's how you raise children. You, whale blubber is really important. You whale on them till they blubber. And, you know, <laughs> and I think that's part of the discipline. That doesn't mean you'll be, you'll be out of control with it, but the Bible gives you the, remember the Bible, the book, it, it, it gives you the details of how to do that. But back when, you know, some parents uh, disciplined their children and whipped their kids, and the kids called, uh, told them next time they do it, they're going to call the police for child abuse. Now, that's some real leverage, you see. That's some real leverage. Now, if you ever find yourself in that situation, may I give you some advice, free, off the sermon this morning? Let them call the police. 
I tell my kid, you know what? If when they take you out of this home, put you down DSF someplace or put you in one of those homes because you had it so bad here and you want to come back and you're crying and wanting for me three weeks later that you can't stand it, then we'll talk about it. Maybe that's what they need. Parents give in to kids too many times. Parents get held hostage by their kids too many times. That's because parents aren't in charge. And kids run the pattern of human nature just like big people run the pattern of human nature. You're going, to find it, you're going to find it one of the great tricks that kids always pull is if they don't get their way. And I've had this happen I don't know how many times in, in my years of ministry. Mother will call me on the phone. Oh, I'm really nervous. Little Susie said we made her break up with her boyfriend. Now she's threatened to go kill herself. What are we going to do? Now, you know, these are tough situations, but cut to the chase. Let her kill herself. Now, I'm giving you a minute to process that. <laughs> Get work through it now. Get your anger out. <laughs> think how a terrible person I am. And then think of this. You give it to that kid one time, and she's going to pull that trick on you every time. Amen. Why don't you just give her the car keys, the house keys, and everything else, and then let her be in charge, because that's what you're doing. In other words, at some point in your life, you've got to be a parent. Now, I'm not saying those are easy circumstances, but I'll say this. The reason why they said that to you and they're going to try to pull that off because of the way you made them to be. I hear mothers all the time tell me how rotten their kids are. Well, it, it like, you're, I'm the last person you want to tell that to. <laughs> I have parents come in and say, well, our kids are the worst kids you ever had in your life. I don't know, I just want you to tell right now, when, when, my, when my daughter gets here or my son you know, she comes to this church or whatever, that, they're, they're just terrible. Like, okay, <clears throat> sit down now because they are what you made them to be. You have to be careful what you say to me because there's patterns of human nature. And when you tell me that, boy, I start to form my own dossier. And I start to see these four things not line up in somebody's life. And I'll tell you, it's a, it's a thing you got to be careful of. Now, that's basic 101 in human nature, you see. And I have parents, you know, kid comes up and says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kill myself. Well, first of all, people who kill themselves usually don't tell anybody they're going to kill themselves. <laughs> Are there exceptions to that? But the bottom line is, you need to not to be held hostage as a parent. I had a kid one time, was giving his parents, and I knew this kid was a phony from beginning to end. He came in, my mom brought him in, and I said, well, you say your mom, you said to your mom and dad you're going to kill yourself. I said, what's all about it? He said, well, he said, I'm going to think about it. I said, you're not going to kill yourself. He said, well, I'm thinking about it. And I said, well, you know what? I guarantee you, I'll preach the greatest funeral you ever had. And I said, I'll take that and I'll tell every other young kid out there that, uh, you know what, to learn by this example. And, I, and I'm giving it back to him, you know. That kid had no more. It's, a, it's, it's human nature. It's what they kids try to do today. They want to be in control today. And they'll tell you, so what do you do? Oh, my kid just did something terrible. He just did something absolutely terrible. And now he's going to have to be punished. And the kid says, well, he says, I'll just tell you what. I'll just go kill myself. Oh, forget what he did. Oh, please don't kill yourself. Please don't. Please, 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 please don't kill yourself. Oh, well, forget it. It's no big deal. Kill you. Don't kill yourself. Oh, if you kill yourself, you'll ruin our family. Kill, don't, please don't kill yourself. That's okay. Go out and rob all the banks. Kill all the people. Do whatever you want to do. Just don't kill yourself. <laughs> there has to be a line in the sand when you draw it, and that's where it ends. And if your kid is in that position, that's your fault. So don't get mad at me if he goes out and kills himself or she kills himself or they find four or five people to go do it with. <laughs> Bottom line is, keep your kid from ever getting there and learn to read the signs and keep them between the white lines. 
And it starts with yourself. It starts with yourself. But this is human nature. And you find it all the way in the Bible. What did Adam and Eve do? When Adam and Eve sinned back there in the garden and God held them accountable and, and brought them to responsible for it, he comes to Eve and he says, did you eat of that tree? Instead of saying, yeah, I did, Lord, and I am so sorry. You know, I knew what you said. I screwed up. God, please forgive me. I am so sorry. She said, yeah, I did. That devil. That old devil. And then Flip Wilson picked it up 2,000, 4,000 years later and went around saying the devil made me do it. That's Genesis 3. Devil didn't make her do it. She didn't want to take responsibility. The first cue was she hid. And then what's the second thing they did? They masked their nakedness, you see? Take off the mask. He comes to Adam. Adam, did you, did you read of that tree? Adam should have said, Lord, yeah, I did. I'm really sorry. Boy, I messed up. I know I threw a wrench in a lot of things, but I'll do whatever I got to do. No, 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 no. We could never go there. Adam says, yeah, Lord, the woman you gave me. <laughs> See? That's human nature. That's what your kids will do if you allow them to do it, and that's what God's people will do if you allow them to do it. And there's a thing of accountability and responsibility, and it simply works that way. And before you decide to commit suicide, pal, or sweetheart, or whoever you are out there, I decide you go through the seven suicides in the Bible so you really understand where it comes from. You put all those seven together, the greatest mark of suicide in all of the Bible is one great characteristic flaw, and it's found in every case of suicide. It is selfishness. It's all about me. Don't think of the hurt and the pain you're going to cause somebody else. It's about me. Well, but that's where usually all of our problems are. And this is why when you get that four-point outline that you examine yourself, you know yourself, you take heed to yourself, and you prove yourself, you can see how it eliminates those things in your life. And that's what I look for in spiritual growth. I look for people who are going to take responsibility for what's wrong in their life. I'm not blaming you for what's wrong in your life. I have had as much wrong in my life as anybody that's here. I'm not blaming you because you've got wrong in your life. I'm blaming you because you won't take responsibility for it based on the Word of God and be accountable to it based on what the Word of God says, and you keep playing these goofy little games. And that's the problem. Now, learn these lessons well, because each week we're going to blend these four concepts into what we're going to study through 2 Corinthians. So you're going to get sick of hearing it. Now would be a time to become a Lutheran, maybe. <laughs> Another aspect of ministry, based on what we're going to study. <clears throat> and dealing with people in ministry, you always want to get to the heart of the issue as quickly as possible. We're Baptists. We don't dance. Let that soak in for a moment. <clears throat> Most people want to dance around their problems. Most people want you to treat their symptoms and not really solve their problems. Most people have no real urge to fix anything what's wrong with them. They just want to feel better so they can go out and do what they were doing before. And when you're dealing in ministry with people based on the book of 2 Corinthians, and no, I've talked about, and I've decided I'm going to do this. <clears throat> We've talked about uh, going through a ministry course that I have taught for many, many years of taking people and doing it. A lot of those things I'm going to, <clears throat> we've talked about this year, 
and how it all lays out and what God is doing. I'm going to incorporate a lot of those principles into here. And then as we get through this year and we see where this church goes, like we talked about last week, then we're going to really take some of the key people who are involved in it, who are really using what I'm giving you, and I'm going to take you and I'm going to, I'm going to show you how to put the, the icing on the cake. And we're going to go through some of those things. But I'm going to give you, and this is a great principle in ministry right here. In ministry, you always have to get to the heart of the issue as quickly as possible. You go to a secular psychiatrist or a psychologist, and a lot of people do. <clears throat> if you want a good case study on that, <clears throat> go back and study uh, Hezekiah. Uh, there's some great places back there uh, where the guys made the bad choices. But anyway, when you go through that thing and you go to those guys, uh, they'll, they will, uh, their job is to, uh, is to t- draw this thing out as long as you can or till your insurance runs out. You'll be amazing how quick you get healed when your insurance runs out. My job is to solve your problem as quickly as possible. You see, they do it because they make a living. I do it because it's my life. And in the Bible, Bible principles, ministry in 2 Corinthians, you always try to solve the problem and get to the problem as quickly as you can. Diagnose it first time in. Many of you come in to see me and you have issues that you want to deal with. Part of the plan that we put together when you go out that you're going to work through and going to make it happen, you know is basically in many cases it's simply getting to that point where you, uh, you understand what your issue is and then you work on it from there or you don't work on it from there. And you know, people will lie to you. Mark it down. They will look you right in the eye and lie straight to you. People will tell you their version of a story. That's why when somebody comes to me and says, you know what so-and-so is saying? I said, no, what are they saying? They lay it all out. Here's what I do. I'll say, well, go get so-and-so and bring him here. Oh, no, I couldn't do that. Well, then get out of here. I'll have a husband and wife come in and they'll see me separate. The guy says, she's this, and then she'll come in and say, he's this. And in my mind, I know all this. They're both this. But sometimes you got to get it that way to get it down to deal with it where it's really at. But people's going to lie to you. You get the idea that because you're dealing with Christians and we're in a church, people won't lie to you. They'll lie to you through both sides of their mouth. They'll tell you their version of the story. They'll tell you half the truth. And be stupid enough to think, maybe not in your case, but in my case, you don't know they're lying to you. You see, in ministry, you have to be smarter than the problem, people. And sometimes you have to be smarter than the people that you deal with. Now, this is why I've given you before in counseling the great Solomon principle. The great Solomon principle is based on the story of two harlots coming in to see Solomon. Solomon's the king. The Bible talks about how wise he is. And I've told you this before. When I first read that story and I first read a basic commentary on Solomon and it talked about in the Bible how that after he made this decision, all the world rivaled at Solomon and thought he marveled at his wisdom. I, I have to tell you, I looked at that story and I thought to myself, well, I don't see much wisdom in that. Well, the story goes that he's on the throne and he's making judgments every day and he brings these two harlots in. And these two harlots both had an illegitimate child. And the illegitimate child of one died. And so during the night, the one woman took the other woman's baby because you couldn't tell babies apart, I guess, back then. I don't know. But anyway, and in the morning, she says, it's my baby. Put the dead baby where the other baby was. So they're spatting over the thing. And so finally, they bring it to Solomon. And Solomon's sitting up there, and the two women come up, and they lay out their story, and they basically say, okay, here's the story. 
Your Honor. Uh, you know, this, we both had babies, and we went to bed last night, and she rolled over on hers and killed it. And then while I was sleeping, she took her dead baby and put it in my baby's clothes and put it with me and took my baby and put her in clothes and put it with her. And, Your Honor, that's not my baby. The other woman says, oh, she's, she's lying to you. That is a bull-faced lie. Let me tell you something. She comes from a long line of liars. She goes to a church over here. It's full of liars. I'm telling you, Your Honor, you need to die. This is my baby. Solomon didn't know. Solomon didn't know at all. So Solomon did the only thing that he needed to do, and I think it was pretty stupid when I first read it. He said, anybody got a sword? You see, rule one, Solomon was going to get to the heart of the problem as fast as he could. Now, the fastest way is to cut that baby in half and give her half and her half. And Solomon said, bring me a sword. <clears throat> so they bring in a big sword and tell him, all right, I can't figure this out. You know what? I'm glad you're both in my kingdom, but let's be honest. You're both harlots. <laughs> You both lie. You got bad character. I can't decide who's telling you the truth because I don't even know who's telling the truth because I don't know you. I just know the facts. You're both harlots. You both got illegitimate children. You're both not going to be elected mother of the year next year. So <clears throat> I don't know what to tell you. So the only thing I do is cut that baby in half and you take the front half and you take the back half or you can have whatever half you want. I don't care. And let's call it quits. Well, immediately when he said that, the real mother said, no, 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 no. Let her have the baby. The mother who was not her baby said, ah, yeah, cut it in half. See, immediately Solomon knew who was telling the truth by how they reacted to the baby. But keep in mind, they're both harlots. They're both wrong. They're both not right. And they're both coming to him with bad character backgrounds. He doesn't know any, any more than you will when you're dealing with people. Solomon did the only thing he knew to do. He called for a sword. And I found over the years that when you have people try to tell you one thing and they're lying to you and they're not being up front and they're saying one thing but they're doing something else throughout the week and all these things and they're portraying something, the best thing you can do is put them under a sword. Now, Hebrews chapter 4, 7, that the word of God is a sharp two-edged sword with dividing asunder and discerns the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto him in the eyes which we have to do. When you put somebody out of the principles of the Word of God and they have to live under it, I'm not going to give you any names, but <clears throat> a couple of years ago we had a, a couple come into our church and um, uh, typical marital, marital problems. Both really nice people. I mean, I, I just, I mean, they were. I'm, I'm, I mean, they both had their issues, but they were nice people. They weren't bad people. But they come in and they see me, you know, and he comes over and he tells me how rotten she is, and she comes in and tells me how rotten he is, and, you know, and, and it's typical stuff. So I meet with them together, get a plan. And here's the deal. I don't know. I like them both. It's not one of those things where I ever get into a situation where I look at one or the other and I say, you know what, I don't like you. <laughs> now, I've said that after I've got to know you for a while, but I don't say that going in. I'm just kidding. I don't sit there and say, well, I don't like the way she does her hair, so she's got to be wrong. You know, there are people who make their judgments like that. I don't like the way she talks. I think she's too bold. I think she's too, I think she, she talks too much. Well, I mean, you don't judge character on that. Here I go again. Most women talk too much. <clears throat> you don't judge it on that. <clears throat> no, I'm just kidding. You. You, you know, and I don't look at the guy and say, well, you know, he's, he's, he's fat or he's skinny or he's, you know, he's tall or he's too short or, you know what, he, he's meeky when he talks. Or, uh, yeah. You don't judge it on that. A lot of people do. But that will get you into problems every time. No, you've got to look and see <clears throat> what the substance is. And the only way to know what the substance is <clears throat> 
is to put them under that four-point outline without them even knowing it, putting under the sword, putting into a program where they understand what they've got to do with the Bible to fix the problem they've got, and then subject them to this abuse every Sunday morning and Thursday night. You know what? It wasn't a year till that guy was out of here on to another conquest, and the woman stayed in this church, kept growing in this church, and kept, and today is one of the great assets to this ministry and to this church. And you know what? I never had to make any decision at all. I never had to say to him, you're a phony. I never had to say to her, you're right and he's wrong. I never had to say, you're right and she's wrong. I just did what Solomon did because the word of God, the sword, like it was Solomon, will always produce who's telling the truth and who's telling not. You know why? Because it's based on biblical principles. You tell me one thing and your life is, a, is an ash heap of violated biblical principles, I know what I'm dealing with. It's just that simple. These are things you have to learn. These are things that you can lie all day and justify yourself, but I'll tell you what, when you get put under the sword, the Bible always fleshes out the wannabes, and the Bible always takes the things and lets you see what you're really dealing with. And that's why if you follow that, you're not going to change the people who try to deceive you. I'm not telling you for that. You're going into an area, and many of you in the next year are going to be working with people in circumstances and scenarios that is absolutely vital for you to know these things. I'm not telling you this so you can fix their problems. You're not going to probably be able to do that. I'm telling you so you don't get caught up in it and you don't get waste a lot of time with something that nobody really, you know, I, 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 first years of my ministry, and it, God had to teach me a lot of things the hard way. I remember when I was a, in, when I was a young guy and I was just here in Kansas City and I, I know I was a youth pastor. And in our church back then, visitation was a big deal. You had a visitation night on Thursday night where everybody came to the church. Really, nobody came to the church, but <clears throat> you went to the church, you had dinner there, you got cards, and then you went out and visited people. On Saturday morning, the pastors were required to take <clears throat> the first four hours of the day and make calls, go out and contact people, because we had to get as many people in church as we can. And, you know, and I, I, I went through that, and, you know, I, I followed the rules for a while, and it, it just was so stupid. And I thought to myself, <clears throat> and the answer was, you know, we'd go out and we'd knock on doors and nobody would be home. Oh, they're home. They've learned your pattern. <laughs> I mean, they wouldn't even turn the TV. I've actually went in and talked to people and invited them. You know, I said, I want to really want you to. And the guy was no, he was absolutely disinterested. And I'm doing my little ritual. And I'm saying, you know, uh, I just want to stop by and let you know we're really glad you came to church last week. And the television's on. I had one guy when I was talking, he wasn't even looking at me. And I'm going through my routine, you know. And he drinks over and turns the TV up. <laughs> and, 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 I, and, and we were always told the same thing. Well, God will bless your efforts. You know, the fact that nobody wants to hear it, nobody ever comes back to church, but God will bless your efforts. And I, I remember, and I remember it was one cold, I remember the place, it was down off of Van Brunt. And I was, went down there and it was like, 
February or January, and it was snow on the ground, but it was starting to, and it was really slushy and mushy, and there was a lot of puddles of icy water all over the place, you know. And I had been really struggling with all of this, and I, and I, I, I come to the point where I thought to myself, you know what, I'm just going to go ahead and do this anyhow. He says, I said, because God will bless my efforts. So I got out of the car, and I was going to, and I've been to this house five times, and this guy doesn't care about nothing. It, it, uh, I had one guy one time, I'll tell you this story before I finish this one. I had one guy one day, everybody tells you, oh, I'll be back. They don't come back. I went to the door one time, I was so frustrated. My level of frustration was so bad, I knocked on the door and a guy come up and he says, here. I said, I'd like to have you, no, we'd like to have you come back. He says, look, I don't want you coming back anymore. I don't want to come to your church. I don't want to go to any church. I just want you to leave me alone. And I instinctively pulled out, I had a $5 bill and I said, here. I said, have lunch on me. He said, what's this for? I said, you're the most honest man I met today. <laughs> I said, go have lunch on me. So I'm getting out of the car, going up to this house, and I'm walking up the thing, and I slipped on the ice. Now, I got my, back then you wore a three-piece suit, you know, I mean, you look part. I slipped on the ice, my feet came up, and I landed right in about that much of icy, cold, muddy water. And I'm laying there, and honest, I don't believe in visions, and I don't believe in those things, but... I looked up, and the angel of the Lord was standing over me. <laughs> and he, he said, now, do you still think I'm going to bless your efforts? And he said, you know what, Bob? He says, you're a good guy, and I love you a lot, but you are one of the stupidest individuals I've ever met in my life. You're out here trying to talk to people who don't want to talk to you. You're out here trying to catch people who don't want to get caught. And you're out here wasting your time. I said, you know what? I've given you a Sunday school class of 200 people back there. Why don't you just do this? Next Sunday, why don't you get up and say, I got a sign-up sheet in the back. And next Saturday, anybody that wants to come in from the same time period I'm out here visiting, and you want to learn some things about the Bible, I'm going to outline the book of Genesis for you. Put that out there and see what happens. I did. That Sunday after that, I had 75 people signed up that wanted to come. You see what I was doing? I was wasting time chasing the people who didn't want to hear it when I had 75 people in my own Sunday school class that wanted to hear it, but I was measuring on the minors, trying to chase the people who did not want to get caught and forsaking the people who wanted to learn. That's not the way you run a church. And, of course, I had to learn those things because you're going to realize that not everybody wants to do what's right and not everybody's going to do what's right. Now, very quickly today, and we're not going to, I wanted to lay that out for you, those, those principles, but let's move into this thing here, and I want to read this, and we won't get through it all today, but that's fine, because there's a lot in here. But today, I want to begin to look at another great principle on ministry that goes along with what we've just said today, and I want you to incorporate these. I want you to get these principles down in dealing with people in ministry. You're going to use them. You're going to see in this next year that many of you, like I said last week, are right on that edge where you're ready to step up and really develop some skills with people in your world and in your life. And uh, I want to look at another great lesson on ministry that he gives them. But we've got to keep it all together. We can't get so far out in getting new principles that we don't tie it back into the foundational principles. And I, I want you to learn these lessons on ministry and begin to apply them to what God has given us here uh, as the object lesson of all the great opportunities we have to work with people. And I want to tell you this too, guys. 
I know there's a lot of hoopla about going to Bible college and seminaries and all of those things. But I'm going to tell you right now, the Bible's way of training men and women for the ministry is in a local church and on-the-job training is the best way to do that. I'm not fighting anything. Somebody said, you're anti-Bible. No, I'm just really pro-local church. I can't see going off to a Bible college someplace to learn how to build a church being taught by a guy who never built one. That's like learning Olympic running from a man with no legs. Uh, It doesn't make any sense to me. You've got to get where the action is, and that's how God teaches you. That's the way it works. So he says in chapter 1, verses 14 through 24, he says, as also you have acknowledged us in part, we talked about this last week, that we are your rejoicing even as uh, also uh, ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And this is the confidence I was minded to come unto you before that you might have a second benefit and to pass by you into Macedonia and to come again out of Macedonia unto you and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore uh, was thus minded, did I use lightness or the things that I purpose? Do I purpose according to the flesh? That with me there should be yea, yea, and nay, nay. But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. For the Son of God, uh, uh, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, even by me and Stephanus and Timothy, was not yea and nay, but in him was yea. What he's saying, they're not talking out of both sides of their mouth. They're not saying yes over here and saying no over here. They're meaning what they say is what he's saying by that. For all the promises of God in him are yea, and all in him amen, under the glory of God by us. Now he which established us with you in Christ hath anointed us in God, who hath also sealed us and hath given the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. Moreover, I call God for a record upon my soul that to spare you I came not as yet unto Corinth. Not uh, for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers of your joy, uh, for by faith ye stand. Now, uh, uh, we're going to get into this this week uh, a little bit. We're going to really get into it next week. But I, I want to draw your attention to verse 24. I think this really sums up everything we've looked at so far. And I, I, I think this is a great, great, great principle. You know, in ministry and in preaching... I wish that you didn't have to say hard things, but in ministry, you're dealing with hard people. And you're going to find that the great example of that is the Old Testament and the prophets going to the nation of Israel. The religious leaders were very religious. They had on a mask. They had their cloak of maliciousness. But in actuality, they wanted nothing to do with God. They're much like many of God's people today. And God sent the prophets to them. And they hated the prophets. They absolutely deplored them. They hated them because nobody likes somebody telling them the truth when you are bent on believing a lie, especially when it's about yourself. We don't want to hear it. And Israel would not do the same things that most of God's people won't do today. They wouldn't examine themselves. They wouldn't know who they really were and get honest with themselves. They wouldn't take heed to themselves. And they certainly would not prove themselves, not by the Bible standard anyhow. And you'll find that same scenario all down through there. You find in Paul's life, and at some point in your world, as you grow, you need to going to take a real good study of the life of Paul. I may teach it to you at some point. Uh, I, I have one of the greatest study outlines on the life of Paul uh, that I just took me many, many years to put together. He's always been a, he's always been a, a, a favorite of mine as far as a model of so many things. 
and not so much of obviously by what he does, but the thing about Paul that you really got to scrutinize, the thing about Paul that makes it absolutely uh, invaluable is the little one-liner verses that he puts in. And that little verse will just speak volumes of everything else he said. And you have one in verse 24. He said, not for that we have dominion over your faith. What he's saying here is, in context, he says, now we've been pretty hard with you. We've been pretty tough on you. And I've said some hard things. I've called you spiritual babies. I've, uh, I've nailed you on some things very heavily. I, didn't get, I kept you, whether you liked it or not, I kept you accountable and I kept you responsible. And he said, I know because of that, he says that many of you, uh, you know, don't accept us now. And it's not because you don't really believe we're of God. It's because that you got your own problems and you're not going to change the way you are. So certainly you can't have the problem, so it has to be me. And that's where he's coming from. And that's going to be true in ministry. When people don't want to change, you may be the most perfect person on the planet and doing everything for God the way you should. But if you've got somebody in your life that doesn't want to change, uh, they're going to try to make you the problem. And if you fall for that, it's because you don't have to look back and have the testimony of a good conscience. And that's what he's saying here. He's saying, and here comes this testimony of a good conscience. Oh, it's a tremendous verse. And he says down here, he says, not for that we have dominion over your faith. He says, I don't have a right to control your life. I don't have a right to tell you what you can do and what you can't do. And I guess probably there were some people, and you hear this all the time in ministry, you have people, oh, that church just brainwashes you. Well, maybe your brain needs a good washing. Do you ever stop and think about that? I mean, some of the filth you've been putting in, and a good washing might not do you any bad. Your mom used to wash your mouth out with soap, and he said dirty words. Why can't the Word of God wash your brain out of the dirty things you got in it? If you're going to throw the Bible away, throw your mother away. See how simple life is if you just follow me? Let my people go. <clears throat> now, he says, we don't have dominion over you. We don't have a right to tell you you got to do this. He says, I'm telling you what the Bible says. I'm laying out. I know you don't like it, and I know you reject it, and I know you want to blame everybody else, but at the end of the day, I'm telling you what the book says. And Paul never takes it personal. That's one of the great attributes of Paul's life in studying in ministry. Never takes it personal. He is so focused on what he's got to do, and he's so focused on what he is doing is by the book, you can't move him a quarter of an inch by putting him on a guilt trip. And he says, not for that we have dominion over your faith. Ah, here it comes. But are helpers of your joy. That's really what pastors do. You see, a lot of times you don't like the negative things, but you don't understand yet maybe the tragedies that's going to befall you in life if you don't do what's right with God. And the Bible says that there is no joy in 1 John chapter 1. There is no joy without fellowship with God. So unless you get in fellowship with God by the book, by the biblical principles, and get out of this little world you live in and take off that mask and get up behind that cloak and start really building the relationship, there's never going to be any joy in your life. Or there may be happiness. You may be happy because you think you have in life what you really want, but there's no joy. Joy comes from doing what God wants you to do and looking back in your life and realizing that you have done it. That's where joy comes from. And he's saying there, I don't have a right to tell you what to do or have dominion over your faith or over your life. He says, all I'm trying to do is be a helper with your joy because Paul knows that there's no real joy without a relationship and fellowship with Jesus Christ. And real joy is what 
we have to have. Joy in the Lord will get you through everything in life. When somebody, when you lose a loved one and you miss that person and it, you got the grief in your heart, I'm not saying that you shouldn't. I'm saying that the thing that gets you through is to know that there's joy in your heart because you know that person was saved and you're going to see him again. That's why he says over there in 2 Thessalonians, or 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, he says we have the comfort of the Word of God, not as others who have no hope. I can't imagine a funeral where the, the, the mom or the dad or the person that was lost and you got to stand there and look into that casket and know that they're lost without Christ. That's got to be one of the hardest things in the world. But that's, what, but that's what a Christian, that's why we don't have to have that. Your life and my life, when we're dialed into the Word of God, it produces joy. But sometimes you have to go through some hard things in your life to fix those things before you get to that joy. A lot of times, you know, people want to blame the preacher. They want to blame the church. They want to blame everybody, uh, you know, because of the fact that they don't want to do what's right. When the truth of the matter is, if it's a biblical process and it's based on the Bible, we, like Paul, all we want to do is be helpers of your joy because I know the dead-end street that goes, you go down when you get out of the Word of God. You may think you're happy for a moment, but it's going to be one disaster, one bad relationship, one bad circumstance, one bad problem with your kids, one bad problem with your husband or your wife, one after the other. And you know what? It all it said it last week back there in the book of Job. I think it was Job chapter 34, that God won't put any more burden on you than to do what is right. But that can be a heavy burden when you don't want to do what's right. And so you blame it on everybody else. This is basic Bible counseling dealing with people. And so that's a great passage. And when I get into this next week, I want to really focus on the aspect of this thing called a second benefit. And I think it's really, really important that you understand this. Because... um, and not only in your own personal life, but dealing with people. And it helps you understand the whole concept better. When Paul, and like I said, the most exciting things about Paul to me, he's got an exciting life, but it's the little things that he says that when you take the time to dig them out, oh man, it's a gold mine. Now I told you the last couple of weeks uh, into our new year, what God has done with many of you. And, uh, you know, that's the pattern also. You need to know how the pattern of God works in your life, just like you need to know the pattern of human nature of people and yourself in your life. And when, 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 you, know, when, you, when you begin to see how that, that, uh, uh, that God begins to uh, work in your life, here's what God does. Many times you'll come to church, you'll come to Bible study, and you'll grow to the point where you, you get to a certain point in your life. You've got a pretty good handle on your, your life. The Bible making sense to you. You don't know it all, but you're enjoying it. And you're tied into some of the other things that's going on now. And you're, you're, you know, you're moving right along and you're coming right up the deal. That's all a process. And we'll talk about that process next week. But then you'll come to a point in your life. And this is the way God does it. And you need to learn this. This is what God does. You need to learn this for yourself. You need to learn this to be able to see this in other people's lives. Because this is what I see. And I'm telling you that today. We're in 2 Corinthians. We're dealing about ministry. We're getting that thing together. I'm telling you how this thing works. And you'll come to a point in your life where God will give you an opportunity. At that point, you're going to either go through the door of opportunity and you're going to pick up that thing that God wants you to do and you're going to do it. Or you're going to stay right where you're at, not do it, and then not make any more progress forward, but just stay where you're at. And then in time, start to move backwards. That's the way it works. 
Your life, if you could plot it on a graph for a Christian, is like a, like a spiraled spring pulled out. It spirals up like this. And you start down here where you got saved and up here at the top where you're going to go to heaven. And that spiral moves up through here and the Christian life starts around here. You come around here for a little bit and then bang, God gives you an opportunity. You go through that opportunity and then he brings you around again more and bang, he gives you another opportunity. And then you move around that thing a little more and bang, he gives you another opportunity. And then you move through that one and you get bang. Every one of those opportunities represents a level of spiritual growth. Those levels of spiritual growth do not come because you go to bed at night and wake up in the morning. They come because you actually take what God is doing. And that's the whole key. You amass what you have and now God says, okay, at this point, before we go any farther, you got to ring out and use what I've just given you. And then you begin to do that. And your whole Christian life will simply be that spiral with you having opportunities or circumstances, not always good, but things that you have to work through to get you through the next level. When you see the majority of your church going through that, and you see the majority of your people doing those four-point outlines, examining yourself, taking heed to yourself, knowing yourself, and proving yourself. And you see that process working in people's lives, that they're growing. They're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. God will never make you perfect. Do you know why he will not? God will never make you perfect. He'll never make you and me perfect. You know why he won't? Why? Because I quit needing him. Pardon me? You quit needing him. That is the Bible answer. But that's not the answer we're going to give you today. We're going to give you a Bob's answer. She's right. Because if you were perfect, you wouldn't need him. But learn this, Ministry 101. If you were perfect and didn't have your bugs and things you had to work through, then who would the people that don't want to do what's right have anything to blame it on? No, no. You laugh all you want. That Bible's a two-edged sword, brother. It'll cut you either way. You either use it to grow or God will use it to destroy you. And many times he'll use the very people who are imperfect because of the fact that they can't be perfect, who you like to throw up in everybody's face that they're not perfect so everybody thinks you are perfect to destroy you by. And that's how it works. That's how it works. That's ministry. And that's where I see so many of you at right now. That's where you're at, at the point where you have grown to the place that you've got the Bible, and now God is going to do something with you. My advice to you is go through the door. You know what? You're all different. You all bring a different value to this church. Maybe not everybody does the same things well, but you all do something well. And let God define for you what that is draw out of you what that is, add to you what you need to have to make it fully blossom for him, and then let God have it all. We're going to talk about the second benefit next week. And I'm going to explain to you. We've talked about it many, many times. You've heard it all your life. I'm going to give you the bottom line definition of New Testament spirituality, maturity, and a relationship through a growth process that Paul talks about found in the concept of a second benefit. Every head bowed and every eye closed. Now let me ask you.